listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Lyle. Hi there, Bob. How are you doing? I am very well. Very nice to be with you. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thanks for uh, taking the time. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast, and you are Lyle Goldstein. You're currently visiting professor at the Watson Institute for International Public Affairs at Brown University. Um, before that, you taught for 20 years at the U.S. Naval War College, uh, which uh, is going to come in handy because I'm curious about how naval warfare might unfold in the event that uh, the U.S. wound up in a war with China over Taiwan. Um, something that seems way more likely than it seemed 10 or 12 years ago and somewhat more likely than it did only a few years ago. And I want to eventually get into that with you about why you think it's, uh, if you agree, that it's become more likely and and uh, in any event, what, what might be done to make it less likely, things like that. I also want to get into uh, the relationship between China and Russia a little because I know you're working on a book on that. And I think we'll probably have time to, to get into the Ukraine war a little, which is something I know um, you've, you've thought about. Uh, so let me. Uh, can I interrupt uh, one second? Um, sure. Just so listeners know, uh, I, I actually wear two hats. I'm at uh, the Watson Institute at Brown University, as you suggested, uh, but I'm also the director for Asia engagement at a, a think tank called Defense Priorities in Washington D.C. Okay, uh, good. I didn't know that. Sure. Um, I'm familiar with their work. They do a lot of good work. Um, so uh, let me let me start this in a slightly unusual way. This morning I was. Uh, Reading an excerpt from Michael Lewis's forthcoming book on Sam Bankman Freed. And it turned out that uh, Sam Bankman Freed had a woman who headed up his public relations and her parents lived in Taiwan. And uh, the book talks about a, a, a time when Bankman Freed had met privately with former President Bill Clinton and uh, ask him what the United States might do if China invaded Taiwan. And then here's a quote from the book. Whatever Clinton had told Sam had prompted him to seek her out afterward and suggest that she move her parents out of Taiwan. Um, does that seem like reasonable advice given what you, uh, what, I, and I know, you know, there are a lot of question marks surrounding all this, but given what you surmise about the likelihood of war and how war might unfold, uh, would you advise someone to do that? I would. Uh, that's a very interesting quote, Bob. Uh, thank you for um, bringing it to our attention. And, uh, you know, that that shows a little bit of insiders uh, thinking about this. And of course, that was uh, presumably back in the 90s. So it's it's uh, well, no, he was this oh. was. Uh, Clinton was former president at this point. Okay. Oh, I understand. So, so the conversation probably happened a couple of years ago. Oh, okay. All right. Well, look, uh, you know, it's it's pretty clear that we have a very um, dicey situation, and we'll let's you know talk through all the parameters. But um, yeah, I mean, I myself um, feel that uh, the island is in in very grave danger. Uh, uh, you know, and, and the people on it especially. And, um, you know, to my estimate, it's un unfortunately, it's quite likely or, or, or 
let's put it this way. It is certainly possible that um, Taiwan looks something like Ukraine or even much worse. In other words, the devastation could be uh, could be total, in fact, um, if it came to war. So, you know, I'm, I'm definitely doing everything I can to head off this uh, this catastrophe. Um, but but yeah, I mean, the, the, the kind of fine point of that, if you will, of uh, Clinton's observation and, and the subsequent uh, action it does seem to imply that, and I think quite correctly, that that in a way this is out of our hands, Bob, as Americans. Uh, it's just it's just too far away. Uh, the the uh, political currents that are driving this crisis are, I think, poorly understood by Americans generally uh, and, and even the uh, American leaders. Um, and so, you know, to my estimate, um, we ought to be ultra cautious and design all our policies accordingly and advise, you know, our, uh, we all have many friends in Taiwan or many of us do, uh, and um, they need to act cautiously as well. Uh, that That's really the best way to prevent this. Okay. And just before we get into how war might unfold, you know, to give a little background, you know, traditionally the U.S. has had this policy of strategic ambiguity. We don't say we wouldn't come to Taiwan's aid if China invaded. We don't say we would. And Biden has in effect departed from that by saying on three separate occasions when asked, yes, we would come to their aid. And then people in the White House kind of try to walk that back and say the policy hasn't changed. But uh, certainly, th this has uh, changed the rhetorical atmosphere <laughs> at a minimum. I mean, uh, and let me let me just stop there. Do you take this to be, in fact, an actual change of policy, and even maybe, I mean, an intentional one, or, or what? What do you think is going on there? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, if you will, the in a way, it's the most ideal situation for uh, for policymakers. Um, in some respects, because, uh, you know, anything goes with ambiguity, you know, you can throw very hard line signals, or you can, you know, switch gears and say nothing has changed and, 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 you know, give very uh, cautious advice, you know, it's all it all can swirl in this uh, cloud of, um, of ambiguity. Um, uh, you know, and worse than that, Bob, I, I think um, this betrays a, an unwillingness of American leaders to confront the real issues, you know, uh, like, ne never mind, I, I don't want to have to make a hard decision now. I don't I certainly don't want to set anything in motion. And, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to put these hard issues before the American people, so forth. So I think, um you know, and and add to that, of course, this could unfold, as we'll discuss. I think in 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 you know any uh, any one of several ways. So, of course, you know, strategically, I guess at some level, there's a, a desire to always maximize uh, flexibility, right? Um, but uh, generally, look at that. At the end of the day, I myself am in favor of strategic ambiguity. Uh, partly because I'm very strongly against uh, a move toward, quote, strategic clarity, which I think would be extremely dangerous and might indeed start the um, the war that we are hoping to avoid here. Well, do you think, first of all, I take it you, um, well, do you think Biden has intentionally moved toward strategic clarity or he just three times answered off the cuff in a reflexive way and and our policy hasn't really changed? I think it's a little bit of both. I think um, people are leaning in that direction, but they're, you know, afraid to um, 
people on the inside, let's say, uh, I imagine there's a lot of debate going on uh, between hawks and doves and Biden sort of has probably listened to these debates and kind of, you know, let's face it. I, I mean, you know, I, I, um, I mean, no disrespect in saying this to our current president, but I think he, you know, he's a, he's a politician, an American politician who, of course, you know, if he understands nothing else, he understands American politics and how Americans think and what, what, uh, you know, will, um, how to get reelected and so forth. So, I mean, and that, that generally, um, favors a more hawkish, uh, or a kind of, uh, you know, strength, if you will. So, so yeah, he's leaning in that direction. Uh, those are his kind of gut instincts. I think uh, we could say that that are coming out in these uh, little statements. Uh, there's, there's, some have had kind of some caveats around them, and and some have been sort of walked back. But but yes, I mean we're getting a kind of creeping movement away from strategic ambiguity and towards strategic clarity. I think that's a, a very fundamental mistake, and uh, I, I myself am not. Uh, I don't support you know any of these statements that the president made. Okay, so as for how war might unfold, now, there have been a certain number of war games. Most of those, I think, are classified, and we might hear leaks about them. And in fact, there's one kind of famous leak where someone who is privy to some of these classified war games basically said, no matter how many times we do this war game, it doesn't work out well. Or I think the quote was, we get our asses handed to us or something. Um, now, I don't yeah, by think the way, that, if I could interrupt, Bob, that that quote is from David Akmanek, who was an assistant secretary of defense, I think, uh, mm -hmm. and, and now uh, I think is at Rand. But but I mean, so that I, I think these kind of statements are not easily dismissed. Uh, but but anyway, that, you know, so yeah. but yes, generally, you're right. They, these have by and large been uh, classified uh, efforts uh, and, you know, I don't have really any exposure to those. Uh, and of course, but there was, know, I, I can't speak about anything that, that I did have exposure to. So, so, um, yeah, one was, one was, I would just say that, sorry, I, I just want to emphasize here that, um, what we do know about those classified war games is what has in those statements by Akronik right. and others that have come out in the press, uh, subsequently. And I'm, I'm just reading the same ones that everybody else is reading there. And then there was this thing done by the, I think, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, right? Uh, didn't they do a war game and actually release some of the results, or am I mixed up about that? No, you're exactly right, Bob. And th this is really important. I want to underline this uh, twice for listeners that, that they should um, uh, pick up this report. You can get it, uh, the, the PDF. Uh, for free online, the entire report. Um, and that, that's very unusual in these kind of, uh, in this milieu. Uh, that's why I'm trying to draw attention to this report uh, put together. The authors were uh, Kansian, Kansian, and uh, Hagenbotham. There's a father-son combination there. Um, and it came out in January, 2023. So it's it's very up to date. It it does, you know, I think have some real strengths that it it provides, I think, uh, you know, if you will, the, the best fidelity look at what an actual amphibious invasion would look like. And it points out a lot of um, a lot of difficulties, including, you know, huge uh, losses on both sides. Um, and, uh, you know, it points out the obvious, I think, uh, point, but I'll just say it anyway, that Taiwan, unlike Ukraine, you know, Ukraine could be reinforced and reinforced and reinforced and has been uh, for for more than a year. But um, that could not happen on in the Taiwan scenario. Because but, but, it's yeah, an, because it's an island, you mean? Exactly. Yeah, it can be cut off 
very, uh, I would say, very easily, actually. Um, but just to come back to this this report, so, you know, I think that this is the most important study of a uh, of a Taiwan scenario that has been uh, published, uh, really, uh, I, I guess I have to say that has ever been published. So that's, again, why I uh, I, I um, am, am asking uh, whatever your position on the issue uh, and if you care about U.S. national security uh, and you're worried about this, um, please take a look at this. So I gather uh, the game didn't run uh, like through the whole war, kind of. It was a limited, I don't know, 48, 72 hours or something, like how it would unfold initially. Um but do you recall, uh, like roughly, like okay, so what what did they say would, according to this game, the simulation, um, happen within that time, that that fairly brief time span? Like, what what kind of magnitude of of like uh, destruction are we talking about, or what? Okay, yeah, sure. Uh, let me. I can kind of summarize quickly. Although, I mean, there there are kind of the findings and then there are the recommendations and we might want to discuss both. But let me stick to the findings for a minute. And, you know, again, I, I would invite those uh, people really interested in the report to uh, to ask the authors their assessment and, and get them. You know, I don't want to put words in their mouth, mm -hmm. if you, but I'll give you my best summary. Uh, um, the, first of all, the, they're very clear that they're modeling. Uh, they call it the first battle. Um, and it, so it is, as you said, it's not the whole war. It's about, I think it's really covers the first month or six weeks, if you will. Um, and th this is something that has to be borne in mind that that it, when we talk about the losses that I'm about to mention are not, um, did not cover the entire war. Um, so, but the, another caveat that they put up front is that this is, uh, this models an amphibious invasion. So this is the all out attack. And, and there are mm -hmm. many other options available to the Chinese, uh, including like blockade or limited attack. We, we can mm -hmm. talk through some of those options. I've, I've definitely spent a lot of time thinking about those. But as for the results, you know, and everybody wants to know what are the losses on the U.S. side? Um, and, you know, it goes without saying that the losses on the Chinese side are really devastating, you know, amounting to uh, hundreds of aircraft, hundreds of ships being lost. They say in the base case that the United States loses 270 aircraft and 17 ships. Um, so, you know, it, does it uh, specify what kinds of ships? I mean, are these like some of them are aircraft carriers, presumably, yes, or yes. some of them are aircraft carriers. In fact, they do make a statement of something to the effect of, you know, the one or two aircraft carriers that are in the vicinity of Taiwan when the war begins. And that's generally the case. Uh, would be destroyed in the you know in the in the first few moves. I think that's the so that's the first couple of days. So so yes, I think it's fair to say the base case implies that we would lose a couple of carriers right off the bat. Um, now, and this is all within like two days or something. Like, like well, no, the the loss of of seventeen ships or uh, two hundred seventy aircraft would be over four to six weeks. So so yes, you could okay. argue that Bob that this is uh, part of the message here. From if again, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but is that you know they're effect arguing that this is doable. I'm I'm quite critical of that, and they have a pessimistic case where the U.S. loses um, uh, something like uh, 500 aircraft. Uh, interestingly, they have us losing fewer ships in that case. So that they call that the pessimistic case, and then but then they also talk about something called uh, which is sort of a, a worst case for them, and and now they 
posit that this is unlikely, but they say it is conceivable that the United States could lose up to four carriers, four aircraft carriers, uh, 43 surface ships, uh, which would include 15 submarines. Um, and they also, you know, I'd have to review it, but they, at various times they say it's it's quite reasonable to expect we might lose more on the order of seven or 800 aircraft. So, uh, and that's, I think, not even incorporating uh, Japanese losses. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think uh, my my general takeaway is that that they seem to have made an argument that we could somehow get sort of get away with this war um, and, and with sort of, if you will, tolerable uh, losses. But I think that is a very optimistic case. And I actually think some of their assumptions are deeply flawed. For example, their, um, uh, their uh, estimates on our surface ship vulnerability. Now they say our surface ships are very vulnerable and they expect to take serious losses. Like I said, uh, at the minimum two dozen, but possibly more like a third or more of our navy being lost at sea. So, so those would be pretty devastating. I think it could be worse. Uh, and I, I'm ready to elaborate if you, you know, if so, people well, well, why, why, how I come to those conclusions. Well, first to, to just kind of uh, summarize and be clear. So although they only did the simulation per se for a few days, they kind of extrapolated to, to, to total losses over the course of a number of weeks. And is the assumption that at that point the conflict would be resolved, we would have quote one. Well, hold on. Uh, I just want to be clear. As in my reading of it, uh, is that they modeled something like four to six weeks, maybe even okay. eight. Weeks. That so okay. they went through all the uh, you know all the iterations. And a few times in the analysis, they would say something like in the first few turns. Now, that refers, I think, to this the first few days. OK, uh, for instance, again, I'll just emphasize they said we are likely to to lose one or two aircraft carriers in those first few days. Uh, but OK, uh, so I was confused. Now, Thank you. As far as ending the war. Well, this is a very important point, and and actually a very famous uh, specialist, former CIA Lonnie Henley, stood up in the uh, in in when this report was rolled out and put it very clearly. I think to the uh, people presenting the report, he said, "Hey, look, you know, you you've modeled a battle here, but you have not modeled a war. This war doesn't end. You don't really talk about war termination." And uh, you know, I think they did agree. So so these losses that I'm talking about, you know which I consider um, rather conservative. Uh, and, and they say even in the worst case, it could, uh, the United States could lose, you know, a third of its Navy or a third of its combat aircraft. I mean, that that's a kind of devastating loss that might be in the first battle, uh, but we're not talking about the war. Uh, and this, this war could continue uh, for months, for years or longer. Uh, well, yeah, so I mean, my... Tell me if I'm naive or, or, or you know, about or, or just confused about Chinese politics. My assumption is there's no way they're going to put up with loss in the long run. I mean, even if if the conflict subsided and they had to retrench and build up their military and come back in three years or something, it seems as I it seems to me that it's just basically unacceptable in in Chinese politics, whether at the elite level or grassroots level or whatever. For the leader to say, okay, we lost Taiwan, you know, because of course, China considers Taiwan to be part of China. And the irony is that 
we we kind of halfway do as well. We do not recognize it as a sovereign nation as as Ukraine was recognized. And so too for much of the world. And, and we have a so-called one China policy and in, in which we kind of acknowledge that they consider Taiwan part of China. And as long as they work it out peacefully, that's fine with us. So, um, you know, for them, you know, it's like, uh, well, they th- they would think of it as a civil war in a certain sense. And and I, I do you agree with me that like they're just not going to accept defeat? Yes, I emphatically agree with everything you just said. And this implies, uh, you know, you're exactly right. I've often said uh, if we fight a war with China over Taiwan and even if we win, um, which we might, I don't rule that out. Uh, we might even win it handily, as as this kind of CSIS uh, report seems to suggest, uh, at least in their best case. Um, uh, well, yes, I think it's quite likely that that China would uh, redouble its efforts. Um, now, look, uh, I think even the uh, last uh, major DOD assessment said China spends, I think, uh, less than two percent of its GDP on. Uh, on its military, well, mm-hmm. that could easily uh, triple or even go up higher to 10 or 12 percent. You know, China could become fully militarized. I mean, I hate to say it, but it's conceivable even that uh, uh, President Xi Jinping would even would even like that option. Right. It might he might get the China he's always wanted. That is, you know, in, in effect, call this this is sort of like uh, the Russia scenario. You know, China becomes a lot more like Russia. I mean, Russia is now kind of fully mobilized. Right. Um in, in certain ways, in a way that it wasn't uh, five or 10 years ago. And now, um, and, and so I think that's a, a rather uh, likely outcome. And yes, we would maybe see a first war over Taiwan and then a second war over Taiwan, possibly a third war over Taiwan. Of course, any of these uh, could go nuclear, but we may see uh, larger and larger attempts, uh, uh, bloodier and bloodier, uh, of course, for the people on Taiwan, but uh, but also for our side and the Chinese side too. Um, these would be um, in scale uh, somewhat similar to to the world wars, uh, and and could have you know those kind of devastating losses. So, but but you you know. Bob, I just want to again underline this twice. What you said exactly for the Chinese, this is a civil war, uh, and and in a way, that's their ace in the hole. That this is um, uh, that they, uh, you know, what we might we talk a lot about, you know, certain asymmetries in capabilities. But here, what's critical to understand is the asymmetry in interest. Uh, to put it plainly, they mm-hmm. care a lot more about this than we do, and than we ever will. And frankly, then we should, uh, you know, uh, I'm to my estimate, you know, this is a small island off of China with some complex history. Um, it is not, you know, in my, est- in my estimate, it is not the crucible on which we, you know, should bank the future of uh, U.S. national security. So so I'm, you know, I, I'm advising caution, even sort of extreme caution. Yeah, and, and because Taiwan is not internationally recognized as a sovereign nation, we couldn't say that the same principle is at stake as is at stake in Ukraine, where Russia violated international law by invading a sovereign um, country. And and the you know the other contrast, kind of implicit in 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 what we've said, which I'd underscore and see if you agree with, is you know 
people are talking about uh, the possibility that Russia, if Ukraine were willing to do a ceasefire now, uh, kind of settle for what they've got, which is which is not control of Ukraine. I mean, since since the war started, uh, they they've actually uh, taken a relatively small fraction of Ukraine. The country is still intact. And uh, a lot of people read Russian politics as uh, meaning that Putin would settle for a ceasefire that eventually hardened into something like a, whether it was a frozen conflict or formal settlement, like he could settle for what he's got. And I think you would agree that with Taiwan and China, that there's just no way that happens. Right. I mean, it's just it's just that they settle for something other than uh uh, controlling Taiwan once they've started the war and and we are engaged, right? Correct. And I think that leads to, um, I mean, I, I at some point we might get into Ukraine in this conversation. I'm following it incredibly closely, but one, I have a series in the magazine Diplomat that looks at sort of the Chinese lessons that they are taking from this war. Um, uh, and it's a big deal because this is really the uh, well, I think the, the first major war of the 21st century. And uh, of course, that has a lot of lessons to offer militaries around the world, including China mm. and Taiwan, I should say. But um, but one of those lessons, uh, I think, for that the Chinese are taking away from from um, Russia's experience fighting in Ukraine is that they you can't go halfway. You cannot be you cannot uh, sort mm -hmm. of gradually build up or you, and you cannot, um, um, you know, uh, I think it's well known now that that Putin, uh, Putin's uh, army, his original attack, that's, I think, something on the order of 100, 100 150,000 troops. And, you know, any military analyst could have said at the time, well, it, you know, you, you couldn't even occupy uh, the Ukrainian capital with that number. And of course, they, they, they didn't even come close. So, uh, you know, the point is the Chinese have seen this. They know that they will need, uh, you know, overwhelming odds. Um, and and they have them, to be honest, uh, in almost all dimensions of military power. So uh, but yeah, uh, uh, you're exactly right. They will not. Um, this is not a halfway proposition for them. You cannot kind of split this. Now, hold on. There's, there's one caveat there. There are political off ramps political solutions, I think, to Taiwan's future. I mean, the most obvious one, which is one that I, I certainly support, is is the idea of confederation, where, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, I mean, uh, Taiwan's sovereignty is limited in, in effect the way it is today, um, but it accepts, you know, the overall kind of one China ar ar overarching concept. And uh, so I think there are political solutions like that. But once the, you know, once the bullet, bullets start flying, uh, uh, I, I rather doubt that China would would retreat to accepting kind of such a position. Mm -hmm. But but you'd be surprised how many ways there are to kind of, as it were, to, to split that apple. That is the this notion of confederation. Right. I mean, in, in mm -hmm. fact, I really wish as a somebody who focuses on this a lot that that, you know, that the editorial pages of our top newspapers were full of 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 you know, our best uh, legal scholars and diplomats kind of thinking hard about how to find this diplomatic solution, which which is there to be found, I think. Uh, we seem to have given up on it completely. But, um, you know, people yeah. forget that in 2015, at the end of 2015, the leader of Taiwan and the leader of China sat down and had a very amicable meeting in Singapore. Uh, that was a historic moment.
but somehow it's been like completely forgotten. You know, why can't we get back to that point and start talking about, you know, this confederation idea? It's totally workable. And uh, it has the um, side benefit of preventing World War III. Yeah, let me uh, ask you about one uh, thing that's quite distinctive about this situation, which is the uh, the chip factory, the, the TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. Uh, chip factory, which is... Uh, you know, the most sophisticated uh, such factory in the world. There are the most advanced chips, as I understand it, can only be made there. And uh, now Biden, uh, some months ago, uh, imposed some sanctions and and and, and uh, not just U.S. unilateral sanctions, but he managed to kind of uh, rope uh, a lot of Western countries into respecting these sanctions basically, that prevent China from buying the most sophisticated chips that come out of the factory. Now, first of all, I would think uh, that creates more upside to war for China, right? Like, if they're not getting the chips from that factory, <laughs> and, and the rest of the world is, and the initial stages uh, of the war involve the destruction of the factory, they might view that as a win, right? I mean, because they're not getting the the best fruits of that anyway. I mean, anyway, they they I would think it makes them them less averse to the destruction of that factory than we are because we're getting more out of it and we're kind of using uh, the the output the the top line output uh, to put China at a relative disadvantage in you know AI research and and so on. I'm curious what you think about that. I'm also curious as to whether that figured in this war game. Like, what happens to the factory? Did China not? bomb the factory. I mean, I can't believe that if China was about to lose the war, as this game envisions, they wouldn't go ahead and bomb the factory. But you you tell me about all this. Okay, sure. Um, well, uh, let me preface this by saying uh, I'm not uh, an expert on microchips. Um, it, it, so I, I, I'm just reading what's in the press uh, and 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 thinking a little bit about the basics here. But, uh, I, you know, look, my <clears throat> my overall take is that well, this is worth discussing and, and certainly would have reverberations in the, the global economy that I do not consider this to be a kind of make or break issue for the Chinese assessments. You know, if the Chinese are going to push the button and attack Taiwan, it will not be because they need a microchips factory or something like that. I mean, in my assessment generally on microchips is that they if they haven't mastered everything they needed to already, they're they're on the way to to achieving that kind of um uh, technological ability, partly, by the way, that, you know, for, for, I think for at least a decade, a lot of these, uh, TSMC and, and these types of people were circulating a lot in, in right. China, uh, and, and being very well, uh, paid and well treated as a result. And I think some are still there. Uh, so, you know, I, I would say in general on the technology, I would say the cat is well out of the bag. Um, and ultimately, and, and, I think, by the way, but, just but hold I, on. Uh, yeah. we'll go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, I, I was just going to say I think one remaining kind of choke point is that apparently uh, the machines that build these machines that <laughs> make the chips or something, or the machines, the machines in the factory, uh, the, some of the key machines come can be made by only one company in the Netherlands, and and, and but but I but I uh, so for now uh, that's in Western hands, but. I don't doubt that you're right that that uh, Biden's uh, if China wasn't already bent 
on attaining uh, self-sufficiency in terms of, you know, being able to make the most sophisticated chips, uh, the Biden sanctions have put them on that path. And 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 I, I would guess it's it's a matter of, of 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 some number of years before they have it. But anyway, that's just yeah, my yeah. Well, well, hold on. I will. I mean, look, uh, as a, I, I said, it wasn't like a driving factor in the scenario. China will yeah. not attack for that, you know, as the primary purpose. But as a secondary goal or tertiary, I don't rule it out. Uh, I think. Uh, it's occurred to them that that they uh, could um, gain a lot from Taiwan technology, including especially these chip factories and, of course, the people um, that go with them. Uh, I don't doubt that as part of the Chinese invasion plan that they, uh, you know, that that uh, some airborne contingents land around the plant, secure it, uh, try to, you know, and, and they I imagine they even have lists of the critical people that they would want mm -hmm. involved. Uh, you know, so I, I don't. I wouldn't surprise me if that's all part of the plan. By the way, I, I uh, again, I, I don't have any special knowledge here, but I have to believe that that these factories might be on the target list for the United States, if you can believe it. That uh, it, I think so. Days, yeah, in the first few days of a Chinese attack, that the United States, uh, and this may not be the only place in Taiwan that we would want to try to destroy, so that the Chinese could not. Uh, take it. So that's also kind of a worrisome um, angle on this. But um, and and look, I do think the, the the global economy would take an enormous hit if if this war happened, you know, for a variety of reasons. But also uh, that reason, I think I, I would like to see our side uh, as we have, I think, uh, um, try to build up our own indigenous uh, chip making capability, but also kind of insulate our economy in other various ways. I guess you would call this de-risking. I mean, but it's simple things like I, I think there's a shocking amount of uh, American uh, medicine and, and medical devices are made in China. I mean, are, are we prepared to go without that for a decade? I mean, that could happen in this case. So, but, but general, generally, I just would, would say, uh, that the idea, you know, some of some people on the other side of the debate say, oh, we absolutely have to defend Taiwan in order to prevent this calamity for the global economy. Um, I, I, uh, I disagree. You know, I, I don't think, you know, look, there would be uh, inflation would be bad and so forth. But I mean, we're, we're not going to uh, risk a nuclear war with China, uh, devastating losses to our armed forces, you know, where we might lose a, a third of our Navy. Uh, we're not going to risk that kind of war uh, to prevent, you know, uh, higher car prices or something like that. I mean, that that to me is is ridiculous. Yeah. So could we talk a little more about how the war might unfold? And, and it, it, I'm, I, I don't I'm not just asking you to draw on that war game, but on any thinking you might have done uh, about this. And I assume, by the way, that it's kind of hard to sketch out anything with much confidence. The reason I say that is that like with Ukraine, you know, it had been a long time since we had a big major land war. A lot of technology had changed and we've discovered that some of the assumptions we had going into it really don't hold. I mean, uh, the, the effect of, of kind of pervasive drones is something I think they're just starting to come to terms with. Some people are saying, well, maybe in the age of drones, there's just kind of, uh, they inherently favor the defense. And for example, that's the kind of uh, conjecture that's going on now that wasn't going on right before the war started, at least at least as far as I heard. I mean, so and similarly, it's been a long time since there was a big naval battle between two major powers. Right. Like I'm trying to think, is it World War Two or what? But with that as a caveat, I'm interested in your view on that, uh, uh, on, on whether there's just a lot of wild cards because the technology has evolved. But 
anyway, uh, notwithstanding all that, I'd be curious as to how you even start thinking about how things unfold. Like what happens first? The you know the amphibious ships come from China, we bomb them, and then what? Or uh, I, I don't know. Uh, sure. Well, let me take this in a few pieces, if you don't mind. I mean, the first thing is, I mean, yeah, I, I like. I would I would uh, say that our understanding of of modern war is kind of inherently flawed. I mean, frankly, it's always been that way. Uh, we're constantly fighting the last war. Uh, we're constantly surprised. Um, you know, as as one of my mentors. Uh, explained to us, uh, I remember being in a classroom in graduate school, but this very uh, wise point was made that, that you know, imagine if surgeons uh, conducted surgery every 30 or 40 years or something like that. I mean, you know, I mean, surgery, surgeries are done every day, so they're sharpening their skills in that way. But, but this is really how militaries uh, are, especially when we're talking about great power war. Um, and so, yes, I think uh, the, the last uh, high intensity naval war, w we'd have to say, was the Falklands. But even that, you know, mm. I would say that wasn't, you know, extremely high intensity. So that's it, 1980, early. 83 or 82 yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. But that, of course, would not approximate the scale of the uh, naval warfare that we're talking about in the Taiwan Strait. So, yeah, we really have to go back to sort of, uh, uh, you know, 1944, 45 to find uh, naval action on this kind of uh, massive scale. Um, and uh, and yes, yeah, so so I, I come into this with a lot of humility and, uh, you know, I, I think we should hear all kind of points of view and examine all possibilities and, and still be overly cautious. Right. Because uh, even if somebody says, oh, yes, we have this gadget, which will solve the whole problem. And by the way, that is kind of the American <laughs> that's in our it seems to be in our uh, American strategic DNA, you know, the search for that gadget. Uh, I, I'm I call color me skeptical, and one of the major reasons is geography here, folks. Taiwan is 90 miles off Chinese shores, uh, but you know um, uh, many thousands of miles from certainly from the continental United States. You know what, 8,000 miles or something. Um, although we have some outposts out there, but even Guam, for example, is not especially close to Taiwan. Um, not close enough for unrefueled uh, uh, fighter range, I think. Um, but but look. Let, you know, maybe we can get into the nitty gritty here. I suggest maybe we we take it in two pieces. I mean, uh, one, I can I can kind of lay out the the CSIS report. Um, you know, we talked about the the findings there. I can go through my sort of critiques of their vision, but uh, you know, but I have my own vision about how the war would unfold here, and that um, uh, w will actually drop from defense priorities. Hopefully, in four to six weeks, where we're working on uh, five. Uh, very detailed uh, analyses that include the the uh, the high intensity military scenario. So I, I definitely can give you a little bit of a preview here. But last thing I'll say, and then then we can get into nitty gritty here. But let me say, I think this could go in in there. Are kind of, uh, I would say, kind of four basic scenarios that uh, types of scenarios, and we could talk about each of them if you want. Uh, one is the all out attack. That's the one. Um, uh, CSIS focused on, and I have been focusing on that as well. And I, I think it's quite, quite possible. Uh, but many uh, China specialists, uh, including strategists, um, dismiss that and say, look, there's no way that they China would take these risks, uh, nor would the United States. So 
there's just simply no way an all-out amphibious attack would occur. You know, the economic cost would be immense and so forth. So, so they say, well, a blockade, however, is you know possible. So there's the blockade issue. I, I've studied that a lot. We could talk about that. Then, then there's another option, which would, is kind of a limited attack against one of the islands, and you know, people tend to think about the 1950s because some of that did occur in the 1950s, but. It could be larger in scale. For example, there's something called the Penghu Island Group that's a, just about 20 miles off of China's coast. Anyway, they could do a major landing on those or something like that. And then one more kind of step, let's say, down the escalation ladder would be a kind of almost was a little bit of what we've seen, just kind of a, a pressure campaign. It could could be a bloody pressure campaign. They could they could unleash all their missiles and so forth. But you know, just to engage in air and missile strikes or something like that, or use kind of cyber uh, attacks. Um, uh, in, anyway, putting kind of immense political pressure on the island to kind of sign up to to whatever China demands. So so those are kind of the four basic uh, scenarios, if you will. Uh, but again, my mm-hmm. my focus in that of the CSI study are on this kind of all out attack. So shall I start there? Sure. Um, all right. So. Um, let me run through a couple of just very quick critiques on the CSIS um, study because again, can I, you, I think can it's you uh, yeah. can you start by telling us like how the study sees it unfold? Well, like, was I right that like okay, China moves starts moving amphibious uh, landing vehicles in and they support them with I guess fighter jets and drones or something, and we attack right? I mean that that's the uh, we attack their ships and their and their fight uh, right. Uh, with, mm-hmm. with presumably mainly with um well i assume with a combination of air power from aircraft carriers i don't know what we have in the way of drones and uh you know uh artillery fire in effect from destroyers or something or other i don't know what 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 uh what happens yeah. right there yeah i mean let me I, I let's see if i can paint a very quick picture of this i mean look everybody agrees that if the chinese go all out that it will be a massive kind of aerial and missile attack uh, supplemented by drones i think everybody agrees on that uh and and you know how devastating it is uh, well i guess there is some disagreement but here for example i i completely agree with the csis authors uh conclusions they say that the taiwan air force and navy would be very quickly eliminated and then mm-hmm. they don't, you know, mince words there. They say, you know, would be totally eliminated um, as, as a combat force. Um, so, uh, and that would happen uh, relatively easily. Now, they do, um, they say that, yeah, I mean, the, the, they say China would make a variety of landings. This is the CSIS report. They say that um, they would, you know, in almost all of their uh, iterations, and by the way, you know, they, good on their methodology, they iterated this many times. You know, they, as it were, they rolled the dice because that's an important part of uh, wargaming and looked at different, solu- you know, uh, as it were, solutions where where Taiwan or where China attacks, you know, from the north, from the south and so forth. Um, they found that the Chinese were inevitably were able to get a kind of lodgement, meaning they were able to secure, you know, a certain part of the island where they could start bringing supplies. But um, uh, they found that um, basically American forces, how did they engage? Because that was part of your question. Um, they found that, uh, uh, interestingly, they found that surface forces, uh, that is our surface Navy, you know, destroyers, cruisers, uh, and the, the aircraft carrier battle groups, of course, were, were totally ineffectual. And, and frankly, I've been saying that for a long time, uh, and that those forces would take immense losses. At one time, they even say that, that essentially every U.S. Uh, surface ship uh, in the Western Pacific uh 
was likely to be destroyed. I mean, that's a pretty astounding statement. Mm. Uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, they also, in, another interesting finding from the study, and, and a lot of this I applaud because I think they're kind of bringing reality to us. Although, again, I have several objections that I'll get into, but they say that that our tactical aircraft, that is our fighter aircraft, are also a kind of a non-factor. Uh, why? Because the bases that they're flying from, uh, whether Okinawa or Guam or maybe somewhere in the Philippines, uh, get plastered. And, uh, you know, that's the problem with uh, land-based aircraft is uh, they need an airfield. They don't just need any airfield. They need So, a really so uh, to be clear, so uh, the Philippines is immediately drawn into the war, in effect, in this scenario, because China bombs it. and. Uh, yeah. And Guam as well, which is um, well, Guam is the U.S. The territory. US, so yeah, so that so that's there. like uh, so China bombs U.S. territory. Okay, um, true, true, and 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 so that you know, to me as a strategist, I, frankly, I've been saying this for decades that that both fighter aircraft and surface ships would be, if not irrelevant, uh, almost irrelevant because they just cannot be supported and they're too vulnerable now so what what american forces are in the fight and and here you know i i do agree with the csis concluded they say our submarine force is is uh really at the heart of our uh, fight there um we i i think you know i have my own estimates on the submarine force i've worked very closely with submarine force over uh over many years a lot of my work in naval war college had to do with undersea warfare so i i think i can speak to those issues but uh and we do have a very strong submarine force, although, you know, it has its problems. But I, I think, you know, within two weeks, we could have something like a dozen of our nuclear attack submarines operating. OK, but we should we should say to people nuclear, if you, if you don't know, refers to the way that the submarines are powered, not not to the missiles. They would be conventional, uh, conventional torpedoes or whatever they are. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very good point, uh, although there is a nuclear weapons dimension to all this but let's get to that later i suppose right. but uh the other major u.s force that that you know could uh, seemingly make a difference at least in the eyes of the csis authors and here i disagree a bit is is they really put a huge emphasis on our bombers uh and say our bombers are they kind of alight on that i must say in a bit of a surprising way i, I call it almost like a strange lovian moment if you know dr strange love you know uh, bombers have a big role in that but i i myself am very skeptical that bombers could and then that's one of my differences uh, but uh, an area that i agree on with the css report is the um they do highlight the role of submarines but they note that submarines probably cannot um if you will be decisive and and that's because um, not only do we have sort of nowhere near the number of submarines, but here's the key is a submarine uh, is only as good as its weapons. And submarines uh, have just an inherently uh, small uh, weapons payload, you know, something in the order of 20 to 30 weapons total. And that includes, you know, well, you can stack them either cruise missiles, any ship cruise missiles or torpedoes. But, you know, you you can't have you can't have 30 of both. You have to, you know. And, and so how many submarines would we likely have in the area in any kind of near-term time frame? Well, you know, I, I don't have any special information on that, uh, you know, but I can suggest, you know, it said something in the CSIS report uh, hinted that we, we always have, uh, it suggested that the, we have a pattern of having, you know, a handful, you know, maybe three or four submarines in the rough area. That is probably the area of the, 
so so they might be usable on day one. Um, and and I, I, by the way, I could easily imagine that first meeting with a U.S. president where the national security advisor says, sir, you know, we've got, you know, uh, this submarine, this U.S. submarine has uh, is ready to destroy, you know, a Chinese cruiser or, or even a Chinese carrier. Uh, just say the word and and we're in. But it's I, I believe that kind of war, no war moment, you know, Mr. President, are you ready mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. You know, w- would occur probably in the first 48 hours precisely because of those submarines, because they're so good and so lethal uh, uh, that may be very well the, the way that we enter the war. And by the way, I think China is pretty clear that they will not shoot first at the United States. I'm I'm pretty convinced that they will not make it sort of devastating blow against U.S. forces to start the war. I think they would want the United States to shoot first. We can discuss all that. Uh, but but hold on. One more point on this issue of on submarines. First of all, they, they have very small magazines. And here's the problem, Bob. Not only do they, you know, would they quote Winchester very quickly. Winchester means you, it, it talks, of, you know, this refers to the problem of a rifle that uh, is is hard to reload. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and you quickly out of ammunition. Oh, sorry, no, it, it was a Winchester repeating rifle. Uh, sorry, I should know this better, but it, it uh, you you could fire so easily that you easily run out of ammunition. So mm-hmm. um, torpedoes, by the way, historically are not 100% effective either. So anyway, the problem, Bob, is these these submarines have to go reload. Okay, they have to find a way. And reloading a submarine is very difficult, right? These weapons are incredibly expensive and heavy, hard to move around. It's almost never done at sea, although the Germans tried it, by the way, in the in the uh, Battle of the Atlantic. So they probably go back to bases in Japan or something and, and right. reload. They have to go back to these bases. Of course, the Chinese know exactly where those bases are. And the CSIS report rightly notes that those bases will be, you know, among the first targets mm-hmm. uh, that China would hit with its missiles uh, strikes to try to uh, trip. But but China has, I should say, has come a long way in, in their uh because uh, they've been, you know, for decades, I've been tracking their concern about U.S. submarines. So they're working very hard to develop proficient uh, anti-submarine forces. I don't think they're nearly where they want to be. But but just to give an example, they've noted, and I think it's correct, that, that uh, you know, the use of sea mines, uh, especially used in quantity, that that is very dangerous to... Uh, to submarines. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so that's a pretty strong counter. And I do believe they would see both sides of the strait, the, the north and south of the strait, with uh, with mines to prevent uh, U.S. submarines from entering the strait. And I think they would use them in other ways. So, you know, what I'm saying is submarines are no silver bullet. Uh, I'm glad the CSIS report kind of recognizes that. They seem to claim that bombers are a silver bullet. I'm skeptical there, too. You know, I can go through the various arguments, but I mean, you know, more or less, these are very you know, slow, slow moving aircraft moving along a very uh, predictable vector, by the way, firing uh, subsonic munitions that are not particularly smart and, you know, could also be shot down. Um, you know, I don't think, uh, you know, so. so And, and these uh, are bombers um, both coming off of aircraft carriers and some uh, coming from mainland somewhere and being refueled or something. No, no, I want to be very clear about this. I don't think there are any aircraft carriers anywhere near this. And then, you know, the aircraft carriers, sim- the, the aircraft simply don't have the range. Uh, and, and so it's very interesting. You mean they don't have the fuel, even if we want to make air- our aircraft carriers a big part of this? Or the, the only way that I think aircraft carriers plausibly could be involved if they're using uh, uh, like 
long, super long range drones. Uh, we don't have that capability right now. I mean, we've been kind of playing around with it, but right now, you know, the attack capability on an aircraft carrier is really limited to, you know, 500, 800 miles, I think, with tanking, you can push that out a bit further. But again, you know, these tankers are incredibly vulnerable and, and five or 800 miles isn't nearly um, close enough to, to make a difference. Moreover, you know, we're just not going to, I don't think we're, you know, again, this is just guesswork on my part. I don't, I'm not read in and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, on these things, but my view is that we would not risk the carriers. Um, you know, we know the, we know that uh, carrier losses um, could be very severe, and therefore, uh, you know, we got five thousand young Americans on these ships. We're we're not going to put those forward. Uh, that would be incredibly um, uh, foolish. So I don't think we're that you know foolish, and and we're so we would play it more cautiously, put the submarines forward, and try to um, possibly turn the tide with bombers and submarines. But I don't see that as likely, and. So land-based bombers and submarines, to be clear. That, yeah, and the bombers uh, would be flying out of, you know, Hawaii uh, and Alaska primarily because Guam would probably have been turned into glass, I hate to say it. I mean, it's, I mean, they might succeed in still conducting flight operations. I know they're putting a huge effort at missile defense in Guam, but, you know, China's going to put everything into uh um, destroying the basic Guam. Uh, and now, you know, there are other efforts to underway, you know, they're, they're playing around at Tinian and many other islands out there, but I, you know, I, I don't think the, um, balance of forces uh, favors us here because China has, uh, plenty of munitions. Can I just make one more point here, Bob, and sorry to talk your ears sure. off about the CSS game. And by the way, again, I have my own sort of vision about how this unfolds. We can get to that, but the biggest problem in the CSIS report is they assume somehow, I really don't know how they made this mistake, but they assume that the Chinese amphibious force amounts to less than 100 ships. That is a huge mistake. I think the amphibious force that is loaded on ships w- would be well over a thousand vessels. That is not a hundred like they project, but over a thousand, possibly more like 5,000, and could be even as large as 10 or 15,000. I mean, China has the largest merchant marine the largest coast guard the largest fishing fleet and by the way fishing boats are pretty good for this actually they're very seaworthy and they have you know those uh um what do you call it the uh, you know the, the apparatus for moving uh things around a lot of storage space uh and and you know here's the thing china regularly exercises with these uh with a merchant fleet with a fishing huh. boat and so forth in fact lonnie henley who i mentioned earlier who's a great uh, ex-cia uh, specialist on china but he wrote a wonderful paper that was published by naval war college in may 2022 where he said that civilian shipping and the militia would be the backbone of a Taiwan invasion. And he said, quote, not a stopgap, but rather China's preferred approach. So this assumption, why is this so important, uh, Bob? Because the assumption in the CSIS game is you just have to destroy, you know, 50 out of those 100 vessels and you win. Mm -hmm. But to me, that's just complete bogus. uh, it's It's off by an order of magnitude, it sounds like. Uh, or a few orders of magnitude. Uh, <laughs> okay. And, you know, I think if China lost 50 ships in this invasion, they would uh, dance in the streets because those losses would be so minimal. They're prepared to take five, lose 500 vessels or more. Uh, and we just don't have anything like that kind of uh, uh, firepower to put, you know, a thousand or 3,000 Chinese ships under the waves. Um, and 
therefore, you know, and that's where proximity um, is Trump's here. And I, I think they know that. And that's why they're going to be have a distributed attack. And, you know, I can lay out my vision a little bit. Yeah. Which is well, can you, uh, so I'll tell you, we've been talking almost an hour. Um, and uh, what we generally do here is is do that, uh, you know, for the public, uh, the, the, the public podcast. And then uh, we continue the conversation uh, 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 in in an overtime session. And uh, to watch or listen to that, uh, you need to be a paid subscriber to the Non-Zero newsletter. It's easy easy to do. Um, just Google Non-Zero and, and Substack, or, or even look at the link in your uh, in in your smartphone app the, the, that you're using to listen to this. Uh, and we encourage people to do that if, if they value conversations like this, which I think it's safe to say you will not find on mainstream media. Um, and uh, and uh, then once you've done that, it's it's easy to uh, set up your your uh, your own podcast feed that will always have uh, these bonus uh, sections on it. You also get the the paid uh, the the kind of paywalled written content in the in the newsletter. Uh, and Lyle, you've been kind enough to say you'll stick around for this. Before we before we make that transition, I just want to give you a chance to um, well say anything about where people can find your work. I mean, what's your Twitter handle for starters? You're still on Twitter, right? As we used to call yeah, it. That's right, Bob. I'm at, at Lyle Goldstein. Uh, and uh, by the way, I just joined Twitter in in 2021, so I'm quite new to it. But I am posting uh, every day, and I you know I spend a lot of time reading uh, Chinese and also, by the way, Russian material that again you would never. Uh, find in in conventional uh, Western media, so I think it's it, it's quite a uh, you know th there will be things that that uh, unique items there, let's say. Uh, but I, I'm publishing. Uh, well, we, please look out for these uh, several explainers. We're going to publish at Defense Priorities, um, uh, and uh, yeah, you know I, I I have a series in the Diplomat, and uh, but but yeah, I'm trying to get the word out on on how dangerous. Uh, how truly dangerous this uh, Taiwan scenario is. So I appreciate okay. the opportunity to talk with you and your listeners. Okay. Uh, uh, and with that said, uh, and with, you know, thanks to everyone who's listened this far, whether or not you continue uh, with us. Um, with that said, we will now move into overtime. <laughs> 